Hello, and thank you for listening to episode 304 of 60MW. I'm Dave, and this is another of our Soundcheck interview shows. And in this one, I get to chat with Ken Hensley all about the amazing Uriah Heep box set, 50 Years in Rock, which is released today, the day of release of this episode, the 30th of October by BMG. With Ken having such a long and rich musical history, there's so much to fit into this. Of course, lots of Uriah Heep talk, lots of talk about this amazing box set, and also about him recording with Wasp, Cinderella, and, and so much more. Lots and lots to talk about with Ken. He could never fit everything in. And as you'll hear in the show, i uh, hoping to get him back on again sometime next year. He's got lots more music incoming, which is always good news. So yeah, we'll get him back on and have another chat. You'll also hear me say about my love of uh, especially easy living from Uriah Heep. And so what better way to start the show? So yeah, sit back, relax, turn it up and listen to Uriah Heep and Easy Living. Thank you so much for giving me some of your time today. And as we record, we were just talking about before we went to the, you know, did the pre-show bit. We're recording two days before Uriah Heap's 50 Years in Rock. I mean, what's that like? 50 years? <laughs> well, um, what's it like? I mean, it's, uh, 
it's sort of like when I was 25, I thought 35 might happen. When I was 35, <laughs> I thought 45 was practically impossible. And when I was 45, I said 50, forget it, it's out of the question. <laughs> um, you know, it, it, it's fantastic to me, honestly. And I know we're, we're not unique here. I know we're, we're, we're in a, you know, amongst a, you know, a very celebrated group of bands whose music has endured through the years and everything. And, and, uh, but at, at least for us, um, it's another one of those things that I never thought would ever happen. Um, you know, when I was a kid, I just wanted to be a rock star and I wanted my name on a poster and then I wanted my name on a billboard and then I wanted the album released and I wanted to go on tour. I wanted to play festivals and all these things came true one after the other, one after the other. And, uh, you know, my career with, with Uriah Heap was 10 and a half years, but obviously I've been doing this a lot longer than that. Yeah. And, um, I've noticed as I go out and play solo shows and, you know, orchestral shows and things like that, I've noticed the phenomenal reaction to the old songs. Audiences in places like Russia that can't speak English, but know how to sing every word of every song. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then when you get to talk to some of them and, and they tell you what the music means to them, um, you start to understand that it's not a responsibility. It's just a sort of byproduct of something that you've done and something that you never expected. So to get 50 years, and, and I've got to say that BMG's done an amazing job with this package. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and to be able to look at it, open it, and all the memories come pouring out um, is something really quite amazing. And in fact, I've, I've only had my copies here on my desk for a couple of days, um, and I'm still taking it all in, to tell you the truth, but it's pretty amazing. And uh, it's like I told Peter Stack at BMG, or I'm going to drink for the next 50, but I put days in brackets after <laughs> <that>. <laughs> Well, obviously, no, it's an amazing, amazing accomplishment. And, you know, Mickey's kept the name going. And, uh, you know, the discography just grows and grows and grows and grows and grows. But the thing about it I love the most is that BMG's done such a great job. You know, I've seen so many of these, um, Dave. I've seen them, you know, for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, 25 years. I've seen every re-release, remix, remaster, previously unreleased, whatever thing that people come up with as an excuse for churning out releases and same old thing. I became very cynical, but BNG term converted me with this, and the way they did it was they involved us in it from the very beginning. So we didn't feel like it was just something that was being donated to us. It was something that we were a part of. Yeah. And as much as we were a part of the original band, it's a, it's a, a really great deal. It is. I mean, because yourself, um, Lee Kerslake, you know, sadly passed away just, just the other month as well. Uh, Mick, yeah. you mentioned Paul Newton as well. You cu- uh, curated your own favorite tracks and there's one CD for each of you on there as well. You know, I, I love that part of it too, that, that you pick your own tracks that you want to put on it. I mean, that must have been a bit difficult to say the list of, of picking, <laughs> picking which ones you wanted to do. How did you go about that? Um, 
Well, first of all, um, I've got to say there was no collaboration between us. I mean, the reason is, is I think, one duplicate is because we didn't, we didn't talk to each other. We just purely picked our own favourites. And I, in order for me to do it with such a vast catalogue of songs, I had to find a good reason to do it. So what I did was I picked songs that were not only favourites of mine, yeah. but songs that had a particularly interesting story behind them. And... Um, that's how I narrowed it down to the, the ones which I chose those. Tell me, tell me one of the stories then from one of the songs that you picked. How did uh, pick a song and then tell me the story behind of why that was one that you picked? Well, I mean, I'll, I'll pick, uh, God, I can't pick any one of all of them, but I'll pick July morning. Um, and um, the story is that we were on tour in, in the UK with a group called Shamana, which was an American kind of doo-wop band. Mm. Um, and uh, we were sharing a bus. We were opening, they were closing, so we were always on the bus waiting for them to finish before we could go on. And um, one night, <clears throat> it was about one o'clock in the morning, it was a July morning, and I I was thoroughly bored, so I just grabbed my acoustic and started picking out some chords and lyrically just saying where I was and what I was doing. And that's how the song began. Oh, wow. A few days later, I had I had finished it. I took it to the band as an acoustic guitar song, basically. Yeah. And they did what the band always did best, which was they took and made it into a band song. And for me, this was like typical of a band that was really on the same page. Um, you know, we, we, we were, there was nothing between us and what we wanted to achieve. There was no egos, there was no drugs, there was no alcohol, there was nothing. In that respect, I guess it was pretty boring. But, you know, by the end of the day's rehearsal, July morning became, if you can imagine it, starting in life as an acoustic guitar song, almost yeah. a ballad. It became what it became. And uh, I, I, I mentioned that because... <clears throat> Easy Living was a song that came about in exactly the same way. Um, a very interesting story about Easy Living. But it was typical of what the band was doing, and it was a, definitely a sign that we were headed in the right direction because we were just so connected at that point. And I love, again, we talked about this just before we did this, you know, the on-air part. I, I began the show with Easy Living. It is my favorite Uriah Heap song. I've played it. I've played it to death so many times. I absolutely love that song. And it connects with so many people. There's just something, I don't know, there's something about it that that so many people love that song. It's been It's been used in quite a few films as well, hasn't it? Well, used in a few, a few that I know of, yeah. And I mean, the funny thing about the song itself is that, um, you know, I just wrote the song as a song. I didn't write it saying, oh, this is going to be a hit or people are going to love this or anything like that. I just wrote it. But what happened was we were in the studio for three straight days. I mean, we were trying to meet a deadline. And there's a, a couple of us in a cab on the way home about three o'clock in the morning. And somebody happened to mention that people think that we have such an easy life, oh, you know, okay. that we, sh we go to shows, we collect a million dollars and we go on. <laughs> and it was the words easy life that stuck in my head. And 
I went into my little flat. I put the kettle on and make a cup of tea, and within 15 minutes, the song was finished. Wow. And it, it was just from those two words which sparked that little inspiration. It was the genesis of the entire thing. And it became the song that it became. And again, you know, I wrote it on acoustic guitar. I took it to the studio. The guys took it, wrung its neck, and made it what it was in the end. And it was it's a, a trademark Uriah Heap song, really. Oh, like, look at yourself. Yeah. You know, it, it, it's a trademark Uriah Heap song. So, and, you know, it was so great in those days for me as a songwriter because I could write pretty much anything I wanted to. All the key changes and modulations that I wanted to write into songs, I could write because nobody told me not to. And because David Byrne was such an amazing singer, he could sing anything I put in front of him. Yeah. So, you know, it was, uh, it was a pretty incredible time. Was that a way, the way that a lot of songs began then? There'd just be a phrase or a few words or just something would happen and then you'd suddenly just run off and then the, this song appeared? Or would you, was, was the times when you'd go into a room and you'd go, right, I'm going to write a song now and, and just start from scratch, as it were? Um, I would say the majority of the time, the songs came from something I saw, something I read, something I heard, something... A thought that popped into my head, it would be something striking enough to where I just jot it down on a piece of paper uh, and see if it became anything later. Uh, there are anomalies, such as the ones I already mentioned, and then The Wizard, which is a dream that I had every night for a week until I got so fed up with it that I, um, I decided I went into my little... Um, living room where my Revox was and um, I started noodling around with my guitar and writing about this wizard that I was dreaming about and once I'd finished writing that song the dream went away it became a reality <laughs> in the song so there, there are anomalous times that generally speaking I'll see, read, hear, think overhear experience, witness whatever, something and it moves me enough to write um, write it down on a piece of paper. And I always start my songs with, with words because then the words speak to me. They have rhythm and melody to me. And it's very simple for me to wrap the music around the, the lyrics. Yeah. I, still do, I still do that. Uh, that's the way I write now even. Well, see, I mean, I can't even begin to contemplate what it'd be like to, you know, to write <clears> and perform <throat> these songs. And then... You know, all these years later, these new generations of, of fans appearing that take these songs to heart. And let's face it, with music, songs and music mean so much to people and are associated with a lot of different things in life as you're growing up. What's it like as you as yeah. a songwriter that songs that you created, you've played, you've performed are such a huge part of people's lives and will continue to be so, you know, long after both of us have gone? Staggering. I can only say it's staggering. It's mind-boggling, and it, it's a source of great wonder to me because I talk to my fans a lot, especially in my solo concerts where I'm doing a meet-and-greet or something like that. Uh, one guy once said to me in Russia, he said, um, what terrible grammar that was. Ugh. <laughs> I was in Russia once, and a guy said to me, hey, yuck. Uh, a guy said to me, um, <clears throat> uh, you know, July morning, 
um, represents freedom to me. And I, I shook my head and thought about it, and I didn't, you know, argue with the guy because he, he was he was being very genuine. But for me, as the guy who wrote the song, I didn't write it to mean anything. I just wrote the song. Yeah. And the song just came out naturally, organically, and just settled on the piece of paper and became a track on an album and then a track in a live show. But you're right. Different things mean different things to different people. Yeah. And to this guy, and he said that many of his friends, they viewed it as an anthem which they could adopt that represented freedom to them. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so it, it actually goes beyond my imagination completely when people tell me things like that. You know, and it, it's you know, it's one thing when you oh yes, I used rain as my wedding song, which is very nice. Mm. And then you have to say, well, um, let me know in fifteen years if you still use it, because <laughs> <laughs> otherwise I can write you something miserable and you can <laughs> use it for a divorce. But um, uh, you know, I, those kind of things are, are perfectly normal and, and very complimentary and wonderful. But you know, when you get deeper into it. And in, interestingly enough, I was reading uh, you know, Douglas Adams has always been one of my favorite writers. And I was reading a compendium of his some time ago. Um, and in it, he quotes somebody whose name I've quite forgotten, who made a simple statement. He said, music is not intended to be anything. It's just intended to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I good. think if you adopt that attitude, which I do, unconsciously at the beginning of writing a song and don't try to make it something that it naturally and organically is not, then it will just find its own life and find its own way into other lives the way it's supposed to. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. And and I really, I really feel strongly that it's such a simple statement, but it's so basic. It's almost easy to ignore. It is. Yeah, it is. It's it's definitely worth keeping in mind that. And it, if you go, yeah, like you it, said, with the intention of trying to write a hit song or, or something to mean something, as opposed to it organically just finding its its audience and its meaning with each individual person. Well, you know, it's like I've got some friends who are... I made my first albums with the guys at um, Manchester Square was when we did our demos, um, EMI at Manchester Square, and that was where... People like Elton John, who was Reg Dwyer at the time, I think. Yeah. They had one floor of that building. It was a circular building. And they, each room, each small room, had a piano. And every morning, a bunch of guys would traipse in there and sit there and try to write songs, which is like sort of putting a factory um, slant on it, you know, yeah. which I, I can't get my head around at all. Um, and I also have a lot of very good friends in Nashville and Nashville, as you know, it is a song factory Yeah. and you very rarely see a hit come out of Nashville without there being five or six names credited with writing it. <laughs> and my friend Jack told me that he bailed out of all that. He got into it for a while and bailed out because he said they would put four or five of us into a room and you know, just basically lock them in there until they come up with something. And it's, I, I can't see how you can, how you can do that. How you can like 
uh, galvanize five creative people's thinking into one common direction, but somehow or other they do it, and I guess people do it because they want to make money. Yeah. And uh, it, it's beyond me, but that's why I'm so thankful for the freedom that I have now to just write whatever I want to, whenever I want to, and however I want to, whether it's going to go somewhere or not, it doesn't matter. Yeah. That's, that's got to be so refreshing and so rewarding again, that you can just do that, you know, as a creative person that you can just let it out there and, and, and set it free and off it goes. And you don't have to worry that, you know, the pressures have gone. Absolutely. I would, I would use the word liberating because that's exactly what it is. Yeah. Now I'm not saying for a moment, Dave, that in your eye heat times, you know, I was told to, to write this or write that and write in this style or that style or whatever style. Um, but, um, you know, we had a style, we had a definition, we had a musical identity and it was sort of an unconscious obligation that I would write in that particular vein. Yeah. Um, so I, I wasn't forced to, as you can tell from the first three albums. I mean, you look at the variation from lady in black to Salisbury to uh, July morning to easy living and look at yourself mm -hmm. and so on. Um, we were, you know, practically free to do whatever we yeah. wanted to do. It was all experimental, so-called progressive, and um, our manager producer was very liberal in his attitude to it. And partially that was because we were still trying to find a, a fixed musical direction. And um, so there was no real constraint at that point. But now, of course, I, I'm not constrained by anything other than my own willingness to you know, take an idea and run with it. Yeah, but that that that's got to be really good to be able to do that. I mean, I didn't. It really is, honestly. It's 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 the greatest blessing. And living where I live, in splendid isolation, of course, it's so peaceful and tranquil here that the noise of the world never invades my my space. So my brain just wanders about all over the place until it lands on something interesting and then just go and write me down. <laughs> <laughs> so I do. Because <laughs> you've done, you know, you've spent years and years creating music uh so from obviously before uriah heap since uriah heap uh a couple i've got to touch on just outside of uriah heap uh and, and two of my favorite bands i mean you played at the, oh, one of my favorite wasp albums <laughs> you played on uh, the headless children um how did that come about mm. well um there was uh Blackie had a bass player at the time named John Tuminello. Yeah. And he, his stage name was Johnny Rod. Mm. And uh, I don't think we'll go into that. Um, <laughs> he, uh, he was from St. Louis. Okay. And uh, I was living in St. Louis at the time. And Johnny and I ran into one another occasionally, um, you know, a bar or, or a club or something when somebody interesting was passing through town. And, um, one day I got a call from Johnny saying that Blackie wanted me to put Hammond on his new album. And uh, I knew nothing about Wasp at all, except it means why Anglo-Saxon Protestant. Um, I never knew anything else about the band or their music at all. But I said, well, I'll give it a try. So I flew out to LA and uh, walked into the rehearsal room and met Blackie nice guy, very intelligent guy. 
Um, reminded me a lot of Nikki Six. I mean, you can have a very intelligent conversation with some of these people. They're they're intelligent beyond their their stage appearance, yeah. very much so. Yeah. And um, so yeah, we we wandered along to rehearsals, and uh, you know, Johnny was helping me to get to grips with each individual song, but Blackie had not written the lyrics. Oh, okay. And so he was just kind of mumbling when he was there, he was mumbling, um, you know, nothingness. Mm. So I had no real idea of melodies or lyrics. And for me as a Hammond player with the history that I had, that was very important because I always wrapped myself around the melody and the lyrics and dynamically, you know, light and shade wise. I mean, obviously you worked around choruses and verses and things like that. Yeah. So anyway, I learned all the songs and uh, got a good basic working knowledge of them. And, you know, there were some that I felt were stronger than others and that I fit better into. So then we toddled off to the studio and Blackie still hadn't written the lyrics. <laughs> so I really was running blind. I mean, it was very difficult for me uh, to to play effectively without knowing the dynamic of each individual song, lyrically or melodically. Yeah. But that was the, that was what I was given, and that was what I had to work with, and so that's what I did. And um, uh, at the end of the day, I, you know, finished everything that I had to do and went home. And then I was inv- called and invited out to the release party in Hollywood. And um, you know, I went along, and it was the usual deal. Um, and um, I didn't know many many of the people there. But, you know, it was just people celebrating a new release and, and everything and having a few drinks and some food. And that was when I first got to listen to the album. And when I was first exposed to um, lyrics like fucking decadent generation, which um, I didn't get that at all. Um, I honestly didn't understand why Blackie did that because it didn't seem to me like it was necessary, but... Mm. The story on the, on the street was that was his image and yeah, he was yeah. expected to do that yeah. and did it. And for me, frankly, uh, it showed little or no imagination. And so I kind of lost my enthusiasm for it at that point. But that's how it came about. That's how it happened. And um, I politely declined to play on the, on, on the next record, although I was invited to do it, I politely declined because I didn't want a, more of the same, really, yeah, to tell you yeah. the truth. And, of course, Wasp are one of the bands that have covered Easy Living as well. That's correct. Mm. That's absolutely correct. And I think that was connected to Blackie's idea that Johnny contacted me to maybe go play Hammond on the album. Yeah. And then, not long afterwards as well, Cinderella, Heartbreak Station, another album that I really like as well. Um, actually, it's an album that I like. And Tom, I thought, was... He was always one of my favourite songwriters. He was a very good, very thoughtful songwriter, but he was sort of forced by the genre um, fixation at the time to steer his songs in a certain specific direction. And um, in mitigation to both Blackie and and, uh, and to the guys in Cinderella and to some extent to the guys in Blackfoot, I will simply say that I accepted these kind of invitations without doing enough research because if I had done my research, I probably would have said no because 
I was so out of my depth, so completely out of my depth, especially with Blackfoot. I mean, Blackfoot was all two four Southern rock, yeah. you know, um, and and you, you know, Hammond just doesn't work in there. Um, I tried to fit it in there when that didn't fit. I played, you know, second guitar or whatever. But to be honest with you, I was in no state mentally or musically to really do justice to those invitations. And I felt kind of sad about it after the event. Now, of course, I'm a lot more discriminating. I get lots of invitations to play Hammond because I guess there's not many Hammond players left in the world. Yeah. And, um, but I always listen to the song a number of times to decide whether or not I can fit into the song and actually add something to it and maybe even learn something from it. So I'm a sort of different animal from what I was all those years ago. See, I didn't, Uriah Heep didn't appear on my radar until the early 80s. I mean, I'm a child of the 60s, so my musical influences are through the 70s and, and, and through the 80s, but I didn't really get into rock music as such until the late 70s. And I was buying mm -hmm. albums, and this is something that's come up quite a few times on these shows, I'd be buying albums just because of the album cover. And then I'd, I'd take, ah. take them home and then sit. And, and nine times out of ten, I'd go, this is a great album. Uh, and it was 1982. It was a, a Bominog, the Heap album from 1982. And it got, I bought it because of the album. One of the great things of getting into a band, you know, quite a good way into their career, is I'd already got a good backlog of albums to buy. I didn't have to wait for the next album. So then I worked my way backwards through, you know, all of the earlier releases from Uriah Heep. Uh -huh, go, okay. Oh, this okay, is really good, and this is really good. And also appreciating the differences between each album as well. And, you know, and working backwards is something that, that's really good to do. And it's it's something that I think a lot of people do because of this 50 Years in Rock box set. New fans that are going to appear and go, oh, I'm going to try these. I've heard a lot about them. You don't have to go from the beginning to the end. You know, sometimes start in the middle and go forwards and then go backwards and then see how the band changes and with the band members changing. It was, it was really good. It was, it was eye opening and very enjoyable to do that, Ken. No, it's a very interesting story, Dave. I've never heard anybody say that before, but that's very, that's absolutely fascinating. And I think you're right to align that with the appearance of the box set, because um, if, if you want to, because of the just huge amount of, recordings that are included in the package if you want to you can trace the band's evolution yeah yeah in in in, in every musical term every musical sense from the very beginning all the way through <coughs> sorry no it's okay no so no. it's i mean for me it's a box of memories oh yeah it's got to be yeah excuse me um and, and you know, I'm I I've done the main thing I've done since I opened the box is smile because <laughs> as I look at the booklet that's inside with all the posters in it and you know tour programs and set lists and things like that I can put myself in those places all over again yeah. and it reminds me not just that what of what we achieved and what that I was a big part of that achievement, but it also reminds me that it was, it was totally real and something that I can celebrate for as long as I want to. Yeah. And, and, and I will, and I do. Um, it's part of my history. 
I have it in a very good place contextually. Um, but at the same time, it's totally, totally relevant. Um, and as I look at the, the songs I'm writing now, I have a couple albums coming out next year, which are already finished. Mm-hmm. Um, I can compare a number of the songs to songs which I wrote in the heyday of, of Uriah Heap and say, you know, I did relearn how to write songs properly, which I had to do because I took 15 years off after I left the band. Yeah. And I had to relearn, and I did. But it took a long time. Um, so, you know, having given my entire life to music and gotten so much in return, um, this is just another book full of celebration and great memories. It is, and it's one of those boxes, I think, if you're already a Uriah Heat fan, you need to buy it. And I think if you're not already a Uriah Heat fan, you know, you, the new generations again coming up, what a way to get into the band. I mean, this is such an amazing set. It, it, you know, the sound, the songs, the packaging, everything that you get with it is, yeah. it's, it's just yeah. beautiful to look at and beautiful to listen to. So either way, it's a really good buy. And again, like you said, you know, kudos to BMG for putting out such an amazing set. Yeah. And kudos for them, to them for involving us from the very beginning, yeah. which meant that we, we could be a creative part of it as opposed to just being a sort of an accessory or an auto ran. Yeah. You know, we, we were on the inside of this from the very beginning. And so what we're looking at is teamwork at its best. And, and uh, you know, I don't give those compliments out easily, Dave. I mean, you know, I've been in this business a long time and seen a lot of garbage. But when I see something good, you've got to give credit where it's due. Oh, definitely. And uh, I, I was effusive in my thanks to the people at BMG that were responsible for this because it is just a truly wonderful piece of work and something that I am, I suppose the correct word, would be proud of. And um, you're right, if somebody, people do need to buy this, and if they can't buy it, they need to at least borrow it (laughs) so they can experience it. (laughs) I'm not advocating that they steal it. Oh, no. They should at least find a way to give it a listen. Yeah. But, you know, before you give it a listen, there's so much to look at. Oh, God, yeah, um, definitely. You know, so you can absorb an awful lot of that substance even before you start playing things. So yeah. it, it, it's, it's amazing. And I'm, I'm, I'm extremely thankful that um, I'm sad that Lee didn't make it those extra couple of weeks mm-hmm. um, so that he could see the fruits of his labor too. Yeah. Um, but, you know, everybody and anybody that was involved in taking the band from the beginning to, to today is celebrated in there some way, somehow. So, um, as you said, I think, earlier on, I mean, you know, almost 100% of what we did is going to live longer than we will. So it, it's, that's a great feeling, yeah. a great feeling. Yeah, it's got to be. Well, I began the show by playing Easy Living. Uh, Ken, what Uriah Heap song? should I finish the show with? What do you think? Well, I'm tempted to suggest Paradise, but it's a little ponderous to end a radio show with. (laughs) So um, I'm going to suggest that you close with Weeping Silence from the High and Mighty album. Nice. Very good. Well, for, for the sake of the edit, Ken, it has been an absolute joy having a chat with you. I'm looking forward 
to more new music by you. You know, you're, I've been listening to you for a long, long time. I hope I'm still listening to you for a long, long time. And thank you again for coming on the show. And uh, yeah, long may you continue doing what you do. Many thanks to yourself, Dave, and my best greetings to everybody out there. Be safe, take care, and <clears throat> look after one another. All right. Thank you, Cam. You're welcome. And the alarm bell, as always, brings to an end another interview show. As I said at the beginning, this box set, 50 Years in Rock, is released today, 30th of October, by BMG. So now, lucky, lucky you, you can just go online, click, order it, it'll be with you the next day. Hopefully a lot of you listening to this will do that. Again, you know these soundcheck shows, the soundcheck amount shows, they're all about promoting the music, uh, getting you to buy it, spreading the word. And of course, a little bit about me having a great chat with people whose music I've really loved, uh, either for a long time or quite new to them. Make sure to bookmark our website, 6dmw.co.uk. There's a contact us email on there, or you can email us direct, contact at 6dmw.co.uk. The links to all of our social media, our Twitter and our Instagram on there. Both of those are at 6dmw podcast. There's ways that you can leave us a review. There's ways that you can join in with our world tour. Lots and lots of stuff on there. Please visit the website. Have a look around. And to finish this show, you heard Ken pick which song to close the show with. And so, of course, again. Sit back, relax, turn up that volume, put your feet up and listen to Uriah Heep and weep in silence.
I hope that they declare that Heinz baked beans are an essential item. <laughs> Let's keep our fingers crossed, shall we? <laughs> <laughs> All right, mate. Thanks All right. Thanks, Ken.